Well, good morning, everyone. I'm uh, Dave Deptula, Dean of the Mitchell Institute, and we're here today to talk about Ukraine. We were all heartened to see invading Russian forces meet far stiffer opposition than they anticipated this spring. Ukrainian forces stopping the Russians from taking Kyiv was an incredible accomplishment. However, Putin continues to press in the Donbass region, and these offensives have seen the Russians gain some ground. It continues to be a brutal fight, and the ultimate outcome is still unclear. This has become a grinding war of attrition with the heavy casualties on both sides, but one that's seen Russia lose many more soldiers only to take control of mostly evacuated villages leveled by their own artillery. Because of poor military leadership, subpar performance of their armed forces, and a host of other challenges, Russia's embarked on a scorched earth strategy uh, reminiscent of World War I. Any outcome that sees Putin prevail would be incredibly corrosive to the U.S. and allied interests, not just in Europe, but the world writ large. Russia's unprovoked aggression is about more than Ukraine. It's about the preservation of the most basic human rights. The abuses that have been perpetrated by Russian forces are simply unacceptable. We can't allow global norms that we fought for over the decades, over the last century, to get upended here. The price we'll pay extends far past the borders of Ukraine and the duration of this specific conflict. So that brings us to today's conversation. A Russian victory in Ukraine is not a determined outcome. We can still help the Ukrainians achieve a far more favorable outcome, one that sees captured territory restored, human rights respected, borders enforced, and global norms prevail. But it's going to take a very different approach from that of the Biden administration and the Allied coalition uh, at present. Unfortunately, Putin's rhetoric has done more to deter action by the U.S. and NATO to assist Ukraine than the U.S. and NATO have done to deter Putin. Now, clearly, the West does not want to trigger World War II, but it's also important, I say World War III, pardon me, but it's also important to up our game. We need to stop trickling in on a limited scale uh, military equipment that's basically forcing the Ukrainians to fight a force-on-force -force surface campaign. Doesn't take a lot of brain power to recognize that Russia is going to win that sort of contest because it plays directly into their strengths. Instead, we need to talk about a range of enhanced options, including better harnessing air power that will allow Ukrainian forces to strike a range of targets behind the front lines, logistics, supply depots, command and control centers, air defense units, much more beyond artillery and surface-to-surface -surface missile batteries. We can provide the means to enable Ukraine to do this. It comes down to getting sensors and shooters into the sky. And we need to stop asking what will happen if we take certain actions and instead consider what will happen if we don't. So joining me today to discuss these topics, we're very pleased to have with us Evelyn Farkas, the Executive Director at the McCain Institute, Brian Clark, Senior Fellow and Director of Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at Hudson Institute, Seth Jones, Senior Vice President, Harold Brown Chair and Director of International Security Program at CSIS, plus our own Heather Penny, Senior Fellow for Air Power Studies here at Mitchell. Now, Evelyn, let's start with you. Uh, could you lay out for our audience, please, uh, kind of a picture uh, for us of the macro trends in play in the battle space and just where things stand today in Ukraine? Yeah, well, thank you very much, General Deptula Dave, for the invitation and the opportunity. I agree wholeheartedly with you that the battle for Ukraine is really a battle not just for Ukraine, not just for Europe, but it's for the international order. And if we don't defeat Russia militarily on the battlefield in Ukraine, we are going to have a whole lot of 
trouble politically and militarily all around the world emanating from Moscow and from this Kremlin. So I think more people need to be alarmed and more people need to understand that time is not on our side. Um, the winter is coming, the Russians are regrouping, and really the only way to get back at them is to use air power and to provide more assistance to the Ukrainians. And I'm happy to talk about that as well. But based, essentially, the Ukrainians, of course, they were able to thwart the initial Russian objective which was largely to take control of Kyiv, the capital, and, and thereby force a change in government, a government that would comply with the Kremlin's objectives and demands, and one that would call the rest of the country to heal in order to listen to the Kremlin. That, of course, didn't happen. And meanwhile, of course, the Donbass War has been raging you know, since 2014, when I was in the Pentagon at a low simmer. It, it, it became more intense recently because, of course, the Russians were not able to, to take control of Kyiv. They were pushed back. They, they regrouped and sent some of their forces to Donbass, although they are also working actively to control the southern, especially the coastline of Ukraine. The fighting in and around Donbass is basically a stalemate. And as you described it, the Russians are using their artillery. They have run out of, largely run out of pre precision artillery. Apparently, uh, Putin is going to Tehran tomorrow to try to get his hands on some drones um, to try to address that deficiency. But the Russians do not have any scruples when it comes to human rights, as we know, because we've seen them fight in Syria and in Chechnya in a way that just basically blasts cities and towns to smithereens so that they can then send their infantry in unopposed to rule over rubble. So that's essentially what they've been doing in Donbass. Well, everywhere where they have taken control, they've they've used that that um, that tactic, I suppose you could call it. Um, this is their operational method, um, and and it's and it's because they also lack the manpower with the will to go in and fight Ukrainians hand to hand. Um, the so the Donbas phase of the war has basically um, people call it a World War II type. Um, action because there's very little changing of territory. The Russians have incrementally gained more territory and seem to be achieving their objective of getting these two, these two oblasts, these two um, regions, uh, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk. Um, the Ukrainians are focusing on holding them at bay and taking some territory back in the southeast. They certainly want to avoid their major port Odessa being taken from them. They already lost Mariupol, as the world knows. But the reality is for Ukraine to prevail now, they really need to take the offensive. And as I mentioned, they don't have a lot of time. They have to do this before the winter. In order to take the offensive, they need better air defense capability. They need better artillery. They need, as you said, um, General, they need to go behind the lines and cut and, and eliminate, they have been doing it a little bit with the HIMARS recently, eliminate the depots, eliminate the, you know, the um, command and control, eliminate uh, the air defenses that the Russians have. So take away the advantage that they have. And then the Ukrainians ideally need to regroup and again, launch an offensive that includes their own artillery, their own their own um, infantry to go back and reseize their territory. So not just defend what they have defended thus far from Russian um, occupation, but really to take the offensive. And for that, the United States needs to, and I'm sure we're gonna hear from everyone on the panel, provide more, more air power, everything from MiGs to more drones, Frankly, we should be putting pressure on the Israeli government to provide the Iron Dome to the Ukrainians. Um, it's morally and politically the right thing to do. Um, we also need to provide actionable intelligence in order to launch such an offensive operation. The United States and its allies need to do that. We also need to provide them with some strategic advice. So if that's not happening already, there needs to be plans put into action to provide that. The administration did just, and I'm almost finished, <laughs> um, announce that they're another tranche of assistance. The total is up to 9.2 billion since 2014, um, when I was in the Biden administration, uh, sorry, in the Obama administration. Um, you know, the increased assistance is great, but it's still not sufficient from what I can see on the battlefield. <laughs> so I'll leave it at that. But we have a situation where, in the long, in the medium term, and the long term. Ukraine is the victor. 
But there is a danger that the Russians could regroup. We can't rule it out. They could regroup and take the advantage later. Right now, they're weak. And right now is when we need to back Ukraine with everything we can. And I'm sure you might mention A-10s and, and the other equipment that we, give, that we gave the Afghans and we have again. So there, there's much more that we could give the Ukrainians. I saw something in the paper about two weeks ago, the Slovaks government, either the president or the prime minister said, we can provide MiGs, but I haven't seen them show up on the battlefield. So with that, I would just say, we cannot lose our will. And, and, and I wanna also underline the point you made, General, about uh, being deterred by Putin's threats. Putin, Vladimir Putin does not want war with NATO or the United States. So he's not going to use nuclear, nuclear tactical weapons because that's the quickest way to get us more directly involved, not with boots on the ground, but with our air power and other means. And he's not interested in opening another front with NATO right now. However, if he prevails in getting some kind of compromise with Ukraine, some kind of stalemate, if he prevails in his objectives, he will turn right next to the Baltic states. He will use an excuse about access to Kaliningrad and he will definitely press and probe our defenses. Well, Evelyn, thanks very much for that. Just a, a bit of a, a follow-up, if I may, to understand the motivations in play here and the underlying drivers. Could you speak just a little bit on what's motivating Putin to keep pressing with this campaign? I mean, he's obviously paying a major price for it, not to mention the suffering and the hardship on the average Russian citizens. Well, Vladimir Putin is an autocrat. He doesn't, he has only to worry about public opinion to the point where people would go on the streets and be really angry in large numbers. Right now, that's not the case because he hasn't called up a draft, a universal draft. If he did that, then there is a danger that the Russian people will say, this is not our war. We don't want to participate in war against the Ukrainians. And they would face a similar situation to what the Soviet, the Soviet leadership, Leonid Brezhnev, the dictator in, in the 80s faced with the Afghan war, which was very unpopular with Soviet mothers in particular, but Soviet families. And, and th that, that uprising, that dissension did contribute to the weakening of the Soviet rule. So he does have to worry a little bit about political opinion, but not at this point, not at this level of warfare, not because he hasn't instituted a draft. Having said that, um, he is a man who just watching him over time, he just tries to survive until the next day. This war is a war that was started in 2014. And in 2015, when he realized eh, it might cost me too much to win, and let me just try this creating a problem in Donbass, having an ongoing burbling you know, war and see if that causes the government to capitulate to me. He tried that you know, basically from 2015 until now, until he invaded last February and, or this February rather, he tried that. Um, he will just try to live to see another day, whether it's him or his, you know, people in his regime who outlive him. No, thank you. Now, Seth, um, the U.S. and allied partners um, have been supplying uh, Ukraine with uh, military aid, uh, but I'd argue it's pretty limited given the scale of the Russian threat. Uh, could you walk us through what's been provided uh, so far in general and what this means for the type of conflict the Ukrainians are constrained to fight? Yeah, thanks for thanks for the question, uh, General Deptula, and, and thanks for organizing uh, this from the Mitchell Institute. This is a great and important discussion. Uh, the U.S. and the West have obviously provided uh, a pretty significant um, uh, number of Weapon systems, uh, although I'll I'll get to that in a minute. But as we look at the the list, we see a range of different types of uh, surface-to-air missiles, um, stingers, for example, shoulder-launched uh, anti-tank, some anti-tank weapons, javelins, and laws, anti-anti-ship missiles, recently uh, including harpoons, a range of other standoff weapons, including rockets, HIMARS, um, some. Uh, drones, in addition to the Turkish TB2s, uh, some uh, U.S. loitering munitions like the switchblades and very, uh, unfortunately, very drawn out negotiations about the MQ-1Cs, I think, which would be very helpful on the battlefield. Some 
smaller antiquated armored vehicles and smaller antiquated sort of limited aircraft as well. I mean, it is worth noting that in addition to the weapons and the weapons systems, uh, the US and other Western countries have provided intelligence uh, to the Ukrainians uh, for targeting. Uh, they've provided some training assistance uh, and advice. I mean, that obviously occurred well before the Russian invasion, but continues now. And then uh, there's been a pretty uh, interesting uh, cyber defense uh, uh, of the Ukrainians, not just from uh, Microsoft and, uh, and, um, and other private companies, but also from NSA, uh, from US Cyber Command uh, and uh, US partners, GCHQ, which has blunted Russian cyber activity, GRU and SVR. But I think to take a step back, um, you know, policymakers, do like to talk about all of the of the uh, weapon systems that are provided or the amounts uh, that have been provided. But I think there needs to be a, a really important bigger question, and that is uh, what are U.S. and broader U.S. allied uh, political and military objectives in Ukraine and the broader implications, frankly, for the Russians and the Chinese, because this is much more than just about Ukraine. And then what should the US strategy, including uh, military assistance, uh, uh, include to get us to achieve those objectives? So there have been some public comments about US, US officials that have highlighted what I consider to be kind of vague comments about weakening the Russians more broadly. But I think the, the major issue is if the US and uh, the, its broader Western allies and partners' military objectives should be to provide sufficient military assistance. Uh, I'm setting aside diplomatic, economic, and other, other uh, assistance right now. Military assistance to help Ukraine begin to retake territory, blunt Russian advances, probably bog the Russians down in a campaign uh, much like what they faced in Afghanistan, where they didn't necessarily lose on the battlefield per se, but they clearly, as Evelyn noted, uh, lost domestically when the, the mothers of dead Russian soldiers wrote, and they lost over 15,000. They've lost more today, wrote repeated letters to Gorbachev, uh, highlighting that the costs of continuing in Afghanistan were just too high. And so that, I think, is where we need to get to, to uh, the, the challenge is the types of systems that we're providing right now, I, 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 unfortunately, I don't believe are gonna get us to achieve those objectives. Um, uh, I, I think what we need more broadly, and I know we'll get to more specifics in a second, are really um, uh, platforms and systems to target dug in Russian ground forces, which they are, at the moment, if you look at the satellite imagery in Russian-controlled territory of Ukraine, to help the Ukrainians control, uh, conduct some offensive operations. Um, and on the targeting side, Russian ground forces, uh, land systems, uh, logistics, uh, arms depots, maintenance facilities. And you know, look, to do those kinds of things, halt the Russian advances and start to push them back, I think really are going to require uh, more sophisticated, longer range, higher payload UAVs, aircraft. I actually think main battle tanks and uh, some other land-based platforms, which are gonna need once the sensor shooter uh, 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 suite kicks in, some better aircraft uh, for uh, conducting of offensive operations and medium and long, long range uh, standoff systems. In addition to, I think, what should be a sustained guerrilla campaign in Russian-controlled territory. And I just see just far too much reticence right now, too much concern about escalation. I think most of those concerns have been exaggerated. And too much concern about, well, we can't provide these types of weapon systems because it's going to take too long to train Ukrainians in what has already been uh, several months of war and what every indication uh, 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 is likely to be a long protracted war. So there's going to be time. And I think we've got to get those worries out of the way and focus on achieving objectives. I'll, I'll give that uh, back to you then, Dave. 
Yeah, no, thanks very much, Seth. You hit upon a variety of topics there. I would just like to pull out the biggest one. I think if I summarize what you said is what we need to be thinking about is the effects of the weapons. Uh, it, it's not the type of weapon. And of course, the U.S. and NATO have to be cautious, but they got to stop rationalizing their lack of tra transfer of weapons that make a difference by saying it might be risky or dangerous. Um, I, I just take this opportunity to make the point that weapons by themselves are neither offensive or defensive. It's how they're used that determines which. And, and you people need to remember it's Russia that invaded Ukraine, not the other way around. So everything the Ukrainians are doing is, uh, is defensive. And, and just real quick, I just want to get in the point that, you know, the, the U.S. officials need to stop citing the dollar amount of the equipment that's been given as if that has any meaning. It's the effects of the weapons that are being delivered that's important, not what they cost. Um, so with that, let me turn to uh, Brian. You recently wrote an op-ed in Aviation Week uh, talking about additional tools we could provide the Ukrainians to help change this calculus uh, of the fight. Uh, could you walk us through your thinking on this? Uh, you bet, Dave, and thank you very much for inviting me to participate. It's great to be here with uh, a lot of folks that I read and really have a lot of respect for. Um, so uh, my main two points, I guess I would argue, were one, we need to be equipping Ukraine a little bit more like NATO would fight uh, Russia. So we're equipping Ukraine in a way that allows them to fight Russia the way that Russia would fight itself, you know, so artillery and relatively short range rocket artillery and, and maybe some ground troops and ground, ground systems. Um, you know, we need to be in, instead equipping them to fight more like NATO would. Um, because that's how they're going to be able to regain the, the advantage. Um, and the other big point I tried to make was uh, lost in a lot of the discussion about the ground war is what's happening out at sea. You know, and right now, Russia's main point of leverage over the West is the blockade of the Black Sea ports uh, by the Russian Black Sea fleet, which is keeping grain exports from coming out of Ukraine and allows them to, you know, Putin to really uh, put a throttle on the ability of Ukraine to participate in the global economy. And so this gives, regardless of what happens on the ground, he always has that point of leverage in negotiations or in future uh, in, in activities with Ukraine where he can always turn off and turn back on the, the spigot. And so we need to start thinking about how do we help Ukraine break that blockade or push back on Russia's aggression there. Um, and so the, my argument was, you know, in part, a lot of this is, and I think we're going to talk about this quite a bit, is air power, right? Um, to regain the advantage on the ground and fight more like NATO would, you know, NATO would be using long-range rocket artillery and aircraft with standoff missiles uh, and electronic warfare to suppress Russian air defenses, attack those, attack their supply depots, attack their command centers. Um, we may not want to give Ukraine, you know, necessarily uh, F-35s and and and, uh, and uh, F-18s to go do that, but we could certainly give them uh, UAVs that would allow them to do some of that. Um, attack uh, in the rear. And the, the Ukrainians have already been doing some of that thanks to the, the HIMARS and the associated uh, relatively long-range uh, rockets that we've been giving them. Um, so being able to expand that would be really important. And, and the problem that they also have is that once they've attacked these supply depots and command centers, they can't follow up with you know attacks at scale that allow them to degrade Russian troops because Russia just you know, loses a command center, but then continues to grind away. So they've got to have the ability to attack Russian troops at scale. And again, you know, aircraft can help you do that behind enemy lines, whether it's an unmanned aircraft like the MQ-1 or uh, you know, a MiG-29 that's coming out of the Slovakian inventory. Uh, and then at sea, you know, being able to push back on the Russian blockade needs, they have to be able to protect their shipping over the entire 300 mile transit route from Odessa to the Bosphorus. And I think, you know, one of the things we forget is, you know, Snake or Snake Island gives them, you know, another 50 miles or so of coverage and the Harpoon missile gives them like 70 miles of coverage, but it leaves about two thirds of that transit route open and, and unprotected. And therefore Russia can come in and interdict any grain shipments or any other shipments going in and out of Ukraine. So unmanned aircraft actually might be more beneficial there where Russia doesn't have the dense uh, air defense network that they do in the Donbass, where they don't necessarily have the electronic warfare systems that they've been using uh, in Eastern Ukraine, which are relatively unwieldy and, and not very mobile. So they don't have those at sea. So being able to use those drones and, and attack uh, and hold off you know, enemy shipping or, or rather Black Sea Fleet ships and protect uh, Ukraine's shipping as it, as it tries to reach the uh, Bosphorus Strait, that's going to be really important. And, and I think we've lost all that in the, in the discussion about the ground wars, that there's a, there's a problem at sea that is always going to exist. And unless we push back on it, that's going to be Putin's uh, trump card, if you will. 
Yeah, no, thanks for that, Brian. And as you were talking, there's some unique uh, and innovative ways we can use uh, some of our uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, like putting harpoons on MQ-9s, uh, which is a way to uh, deter and then engage uh, the Russian uh, fleet in the Black Sea if they do threaten uh, uh, movement of uh, uh, commercial shipping. So th we need to put our thinking caps on here and uh, uh, get a little more uh, innovative. Uh, quick uh, follow-up for you. Um, I understand that you're, you've are you been working on an assessment for the Department of Defense on lessons from uh, the Russian campaigns in Ukraine, going back to Crimea and then the irregular war on Eastern Ukraine uh, and the present conventional invasion. Anything you can share with us on your work so far? Uh, yeah, David. So our, our work is focused mostly on the electromagnetic spectrum. So we're looking a lot at Russian EW, how that's been used effectively or not effectively during the course of these different campaigns. Uh, and what was interesting is that it kind of it showed that Russia's military was really designed around a, 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 a country that's on the strategic defensive. So they didn't really build the power projection capacity that other countries like the United States would, would have. Um, and as a result, um, they had not been able to, as, you, as we've seen, mount a very effective campaign to drive into Ukraine and, and be able to take territory and hold it um, because they lacked the ability to do close air support, you know, combined air ground operations. Um, and then in electromagnetic spectrum, their uh, electronic warfare systems are really designed around you know, kind of a, a set of uh, very large, cumbersome vehicles that have to be uh, you know, moved very slowly from place to place. It doesn't work very well if you're trying to move quickly and take territory. It works great, though, now in the Donbass, where we've got relatively fixed lines and things are moving very slowly. So electronic warfare didn't play very effectively in the early part of this war, but now has actually been brought to bear pretty well by the, by the Russians, because they've now got these well-defined territories they're able to control, and these big lumbering Cold War, in some case, systems are now able to, to be effective at, at preventing you know, drones or, or sensors from being able to look at Russian forces. So yeah, this, this, this Russian military that was designed around protecting Russian territory has, has proven not to be very good at going and taking territory, even of a neighbor that's you know, contiguous with Russia's border. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great point. I, I would just add from uh, an Air Force perspective, the Russians have never really treated air power as anything other than extension of artillery, other surface forces, which I would suggest to you doctrinally is why we haven't seen them use their air power very effectively, um, which uh, fortunately has been to uh, yeah. Ukraine's uh, benefit. Absolutely. Um, Heather, uh, let's get you in the conversation. What are your perspectives on how an air power advantage can change the game against the Russians, where right now attrition by mass surface forces is their main tool. Well, thank you, sir. So I, I think it's important to understand that the reason why we're seeing this stalemate, this grinding war of attrition where there's significant uh, loss of life on both sides, but really importantly for the Ukraine, Ukrainians, a tremendous amount of mass casualties of civilians, human rights abuses, is because fundamentally we're only seeing war in two dimensions. We have gradually released, uh, and, and I would argue not nearly um, as quickly or in the volume and quantity that Ukraine needs to defend and retake their, their land. And so what we're seeing is the Russians are using their old playbook of, of attrition. And PGMs don't matter to, you, to the Russians. They are going to bomb, mass bomb, in order to, to create rubble and wear down Ukraine that way. So I would argue that this kind of gradualism really does not work. I mean, it, it does allow Russia to adapt, like we saw them move away from their offensive uh, to, towards Kyiv and shift to the Donbass region because time is to their advantage. The longer they can draw this out, the more likely it is that Russia will be able to turn this to a victory, some kind of victory for them. It may not be all of Ukraine, but it'll be something that will allow Putin to not only go back to his people and say, see, we won, we did the right thing, but it will also fundamentally begin to shift all of those global dynamics that Evelyn talked to at, at the opening of this, uh, of this webcast. So what we need to do is give Ukraine something that is going to change the calculus, change the game. And air power is the only way to do that, to take it into the third dimension. 
So what Brian had spoken about regarding using air power to be able to do counter maritime operations, sir, what you had mentioned regarding putting harpoons on RPAs, and importantly, using air power to counter land and shift the entire operation away from attrition. So to allow the Ukrainians to take advantage of what we know air power does, vigilance, reach, and power, right? Give them more than just broad intelligence that's being fed to them by uh, the United States and our allies, but allow them to be able to map out the battle space and be able to begin closing kill chains by identifying targets much more rapidly and being able to move that to uh, a means to be able to uh, apply kinetic power or even elect electronic power or other means of effects to be able to immobilize and destroy Russian forces. That reach to be able to get beyond the front lines, which we know are very static. And because right now the, the weapons that they do have are either the HIMARS, which have been somewhat effective, but they don't have, they don't have the dynamic uh, quality that they really need that air power can provide them that would give them that advantage to be able to really go behind those front lines, get logistics, supply depots, those command centers, be able to expand that to the, the uh, air defense units, their forces and so forth. So air power is the one thing that's going to be able to shift the timeline and shift the where the actual battle space actually is and get at where, where uh, Russians advantages are and be able to take that advantage away and give initiative back to the uh, Ukrainians. No, thanks for that, Heather. And I do want to take this opportunity to just expand a little bit um, and, and, and try to help our audience understand that um, why the Ukrainians have uh, uh, stated their need uh, to acquire F-15s and F-16s to replace their Soviet era air force. Uh, and the reason is that their legacy fighter force is becoming non-viable. And here come the, some of the reasons why. Um, attrition losses over the last five months have reduced the Ukrainian Air Force's size. So they've got insufficient numbers to perform uh, both defensive and counteroffensive roles. Um, it, these reduced fleet numbers drive up the flying load on the remaining aircraft, and that prevents availability changes and challenges. And then there's the finite pool of available spare parts that's dwindling. So unless Ukraine acquires a replacement fighter force of Western origin in the coming months, it's going to lose the ability to defend its airspace um, and uh, support its ground forces. So I think that's very important. And while the administration should be commended for the support that they have given so far, as you all have mentioned, it's really not enough. Uh, and we got to move to the next phase. Now, in that regard, Seth, you were heavily involved in operations in Afghanistan um, and Iraq. Plus, you've studied these campaigns extensively. Uh, could you comment, please, about the power of the sensor shooter construct that's been uh, mentioned, uh, specifically Predator and then later Reaper in these fights? Um, we're obviously in really high demand and for good reason. What do you think? Yeah, so uh, great question. Uh, I mean, if you look, I think, at the uh, campaigns in Afghanistan, Alab, Pakistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, uh, particularly the effective parts of those campaigns, there was a very important component of learning. And this is less to me about U.S. learning and much more about learning uh, the conduct of modern warfare is how to take uh, sensors, you know, information coming from aircraft, radar, intelligence coming from other platforms and systems uh, in the detection of targets, and then to shift that quickly to shooter to shooters uh, who are able to attack those systems um, and targets, infrastructure, individuals. Challenge in these wars is that uh, time may not be, uh, you know, we're talking about pretty quick turnaround of time. So the sensor shooter loop may be very quick. So um, I think what we've seen is uh, getting a range of platforms, uh, in my case, using a lot of the MQ-9s, for example, uh, MQ-9 Alphas. You could add MQ-9 Bravos in there as well. Uh, give the opportunity to loiter uh, and collect information on targets. That's the sensor component. And then uh, when there's actionable information, 
on, uh, uh, on the target to conduct the strike uh, to shoot. And sometimes it's a really quick turnaround. So I think, you know, the U.S. involvement more broadly in uh, targeting al-Qaeda targets in Pakistan, uh, you know, they were lethal in decimating al-Qaeda uh, in, in general and very quick turnaround hits. Uh, same thing, the, the counter-ISIS campaign in Iraq, Syria, including in, in, in cities uh, in and around Mosul, as well as in Raqqa and, and across um, uh, areas of eastern Syria, the ability to, to uh, collect information from sensors and then rapidly, rapidly hit targets. Um, I think U.S. has an ability to train other forces, in this case, Ukrainians, on continuing to do that. So what does this mean for the Ukraine war? Well, uh, the Russian advances we've seen in Donetsk and Luhansk and other areas really do require uh, putting their ground forces into uh, you know, vulnerable positions. And Russian ground forces, as we know, are not very good. We've seen significant problems of corruption, morale, just basic training, leadership, logistics practices are, are poor. I mean, the Russians have had a very little ground experience. They didn't fight in the war in Syria in any meaningful way. The Syrian, Lebanese Hezbollah, and a lot of the IRGC Quds Force Iranian-trained militias did the bulk of the maneuver. In eastern Ukraine from 2014 to this year, it was basically Russian-backed uh, militias in Luhansk and Donetsk that were conducting most of the maneuver elements. So Russian ground forces aren't very good. They are extraordinarily vulnerable, I think, to these kinds of targeted uh, strikes. And so I think a much more uh, significant, aggressive air campaign to target Russian forces that are needed to, to take territory and in particular also to hold it. Just because the Russians have taken territory doesn't mean over the next several months or longer, they're going to be able to hold it, uh, particularly in vulnerable positions. So I think what this really needs, uh, what this really requires is, a, is in part a sustained air campaign to punish the Russians, uh, Russian ground forces, the battalion tactical groups, uh, uh, Russian uh, long-range uh, fires, uh, and any of the forward deployed Russian forces that are trying to control territory in eastern Ukraine right now. So advancements in the sensor-to-shooter uh, in sensor-to-shooter capabilities, I, I think, are primed to take advantage of Russian vulnerabilities here. Sir, if I can just build on what, what Seth mentioned, um, I think he's spot on regarding the need to be able to bring these more advanced um, RPAs like the Reaper, like the Gray Eagle uh, to Ukraine for a couple of different reasons. He mentioned uh, the ground forces being able to target them, but specifically also how it accelerates that kill chain, that sensor shooter construct. We saw how effective the TB2 was in the initial um, opening campaigns, but the Gray Eagle and the Reaper have significantly longer ranges to be able to get behind those front lines in what the ways that the TB2 simply couldn't. But also by accelerating that sensor shooter construct, we can target uh, Russian military leadership, uh, which will confound and put, throw some of their forces into confusion and chaos and immobilization. But importantly, it allows the Ukrainians to get inside of their OODA loop. So the quicker that the Ukrainians can close those kill chains, and that can be enabled by these more advanced remotely piloted aircraft, I think that's absolutely critical for us to be able to do is to be able to provide that to them because gradualism is, is against us. We cannot slow roll this. Time is Russia's advantage. Hey, uh, Dave, uh, one thing I'll add on that is uh, I think that's a great point. And I think one challenge we will have is that now that Russia's sort of consolidated a little bit in, in the Donbass, they've been able to get overlapping fields of fire for their air defense systems, uh, as well as for their electronic warfare systems. And it's making it more difficult to use some of these larger UAVs in those areas. Uh, and I think one of the things we'll have to do is think of, you know, Ukrainians will have to mount more of a combined arms type of campaign where they're going to have to attack air defense systems and attack electronic warfare systems with surface fires enabled by ELINT, right? You can use ELINT from the UAVs to find these guys because they're obviously emitting just and then hit them with uh, long range artillery, rocket artillery or ground artillery or, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
standard munitions, and then and then be able to follow up with the UAVs to then conduct the rest of the campaign. But there'll need to be some kind of combined combined arms action because the, of the difficulty of operating in that airspace as it becomes more congested with with air defense systems and electronic warfare. Yeah, no, a, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a good point, Brian. And those who have not uh, you know been involved in campaigns tend to view these things as individual. You know, they go, well, hey, UAVs, you know, big target. Well, hey, dude, you can take out the surface-to-air missile systems. That's what destruction and suppression of enemy air defenses is all about. And you can do that in a variety of different ways. You raise a, an, a, an excellent point. Um, now, Brian, uh, to you and, uh, and Evelyn, uh, many have uh, cautioned against the kinds of things that were just raised because they worry about triggering a broader fight with Putin, uh, especially given his nuclear arsenal. Now, I've argued that we need to be thoughtful in this regard, but hey, let's get serious here. Putin would threaten us if we were providing the Ukrainian Swiss Army knives. So how can the West reverse the escalation dominance equation from where we are today where Putin's in control? I mean, I would just say if I can go first on this, because I, I touched upon it already. You know, I don't think Vladimir Putin wants direct war with NATO or the United States right now. And using even just a demonstration detonation of a tactical nuclear weapon or a nuclear device would change the calculus. Strictly speaking, according to our nuclear doctrine, you know, which is mutual assured destruction, the United States would have to respond in kind, I guess, assuming that it was targeted at us and they could parse it. But what we know is President Biden's not likely to use nuclear a nuclear weapon, even if the Russians do it first. But what he is likely to do is to say with the whole international community that Vladimir Putin cannot stay in power, that his regime cannot stay in the Kremlin because they're the first government since World War II to use a nuclear weapon in anger. So, you know, it changes the calculus immensely. We then bring our air power you know, to bear on Russia if that's what's required to get Putin out of the Kremlin and to get a regime change in Russia. So that's a whole nother game. And he knows that and he can ill afford any kind of even just conventional warfare with the United States or with NATO. Um, we need to really stay focused on something you said in the beginning. I think you or Brian or others said, you know, what is at stake? What is at stake here? If, if the objective is truly that important, which it should be, it's not just about Ukraine, it's about maintaining the international order. As I said before, Vladimir Putin will not stop at Ukraine. If he gets a stalemate in Ukraine, even something that lets him regroup, he will turn to NATO. He will try to weaken our alliance and destroy it. He wants to achieve domination of the former Soviet area to create a neo-Russian empire. That is his objective. And there are others around him who share that objective, like his, his national security advisor, Nikolai Patrushev. So, um, you know, we, we need to understand what his objective is. So what he wants to do is go back to a sphere of influence, international system that we have not seen since World War II. Why? Because after World War II, we said, oh, that leads to warfare. So let's put in put in in place a system called the United Nations, where the sanctity of borders prevails, where you cannot invade, uh, you know, without without consequences, and large powers cannot dictate small powers their sovereignty, their form of government, or their international association. So, you know, this is really existential at the end of the day, not just for Ukraine, but I would argue for all of us. And if you know history, you know that if you can't stop a leader like Hitler, you know, in the first phase, you're going to go on to an ever expanding worse phases. <laughs> so, so my view is understanding what's at stake for us means that we must accept more risk. We must accept more military risk. We must accept more political risk. I do believe that there are people in the administration who understand this very clearly, but obviously that's not translating into the ultimate decisions that are being made about the weaponry and about our approach. Unfortunately, we are playing it too safe. We are too worried about Russian escalation when we shouldn't be. What Putin understands is firmness. When he, when his Wagner contractors, you know, attacked a, a special operations base in Syria, what happened? About 200, 100 plus Wagner people ended up going home in body bags. And our in our people, I don't believe we had a single loss. So, you know, this is this is 
this is what happens when 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 we push back at Russia, we prevail. And that's that's also true on the cyber front. You know that often gets raised as well as a threat. You know maybe Putin can go bigger on cyber. Well, you know we've obviously done a pretty decent job deterring him, and also defending our systems. Now, obviously, we can't take that for granted. We have to keep on working on cyber defenses and also cyber offensive activity to keep the Russians on their heels and to keep deterring them. But we can't we can't assume that we are the weaker party and we're certainly not weaker on cyber. So I would just say we have to stop self-deterring and being afraid of escalation, because if we are firm, it's less likely. Well said, Evelyn. Brian? Uh, yeah, those are excellent points. And I think uh, taking the cyber case uh, a little bit forward, um, you know, I think one of the things we've encountered is that the U.S. has not deployed or employed its forces at lower levels of escalation uh, very effectively, right? So we don't have rungs on the escalation ladder that we regularly use below like, you know, major power war. Uh, we sort of leave it in the, like Evelyn said, if, if Putin attacks somebody with a nuclear weapon, we're going to go on with everything we got. Well, what do, what do we do short of that for all the things he's doing short of a major power war? Uh, Russia has many rungs on the escalation ladder. They've been using them since uh, 2014 in Ukraine, whether it's the Wagner Group or it's you know the other gray zone operations or it's cyber electromagnetic warfare. And I think cyber is a place where the cybercom strategy of persistent engagement and forward defense has really yielded benefits because we've been pushing back at lower levels of escalation. We need to look at ways to take that into other domains than just cyber. And I would you know, argue that the things we've been talking about here in terms of how the U.S. could come in more aggressively on, the, on behalf of Ukraine would be an example of the kinds of things the U.S. could do that would be lower levels of escalation that would you know, restore some of the escalation management to our side uh, rather than leaving it all in Russia's hands. Because right now, Russia has all the rungs, and we've not been employing any of these other rungs except in cyberspace and arguably maybe in special operations. So using RPAs to go you know, support Ukraine by doing operations at sea directly, you know, going using MQ-9s to, to combat the Black Sea Fleet, using our uh, you know, military forces to do direct ISR over, uh, over Ukraine or you know, doing some kind of uh, no-fly zone over part of Ukraine. Those are all examples of lower level of escalation activities that we could do that would not yield the escalation advantage to uh, Vladimir Putin and Russia. Well, thanks for that. Um, I want to uh, open this up, save some time to open it up for questions to our audience. Um, I'll just summarize uh, my take on the discussion is that we can't keep doing what we're doing because essentially the West is helping just enough to let the Ukrainians survive, but not enough to let them win. Um, so thank you all for that discussion. Uh, for those in the audience, please feel free to direct your questions to one or more of the panelists. Uh, and when I call on you, please unmute your mic and state your name and affiliation before asking the question. Um, you can also participate using the uh, uh, Q&A function. Um, so let me take a look here, see if anyone's raised their hands. Um, I'll give you an opportunity to do that. And while we are, let me turn to our uh, chat room. And here's a question from uh, Sterling uh, Alley. What are the minimum conditions for allied victory that we're talking about here? Uh, anyone from the panel? I personally would argue for pushing Russia out of the Donbass area and all of Ukraine minus Crimea. Um, Crimea, I think, is a special case. Historically, it's always had a kind of shared sovereignty, in, at least especially in recent history, between Ukraine and Russia. Um, and so that can be negotiated later. But I think the minimum is to get Russian forces completely out of Ukraine so that they can stop trying to essentially take over the Ukrainian government and take over the entire country that way. Short of that, I think we're just looking at a stalemate and there will be a renewed offensive some point in the future. Anyone else? I agree with Evelyn um, and regarding how we need to, to resolve this. But again, I emphasize the notion, notion of time. Um, as Evelyn mentioned, winter is coming. And that has the potential of, of fracturing the alliance and the support for Ukraine, given uh, power concerns, given oil, given the heating needs of Europe, as well as the impending food crisis. So the quicker this is done, um, that is a key notion for not just what does victory look like, but when does victory look like? I mean, just to add to that, I think 
the sort of maximal aims, at least achievable ones, I think I, I agree with, with uh, uh, Evelyn's characterization. I think it really is pushing them out of uh, Ukrainian territory seized since 2014. We could go back and forth on Crimea, but I think that should be the objective. Now, whether the Ukrainians can do that and how quickly, we'd have to see. But I think the minimal objectives, at the very least, are to provide assistance, training, intelligence, uh, and other kinds of aid that uh, stop the Russian advances and begin to push them back in areas they control and really bog them down over the long run through a sustained air campaign from the Ukrainians, a sustained guerrilla campaign, because the Russians, I think, are going to have a hard time. And we've, there's a lot of evidence historically, um, including in the 1980s Afghanistan campaign, where Russians that get bogged down that lead to growing numbers of deaths of Russian soldiers is going to be a domestic problem. And so I think at the very least, that is the minimal uh, objective is, is, a, uh, is a, an attrition campaign that wears down Russian ground forces in Ukraine and over time becomes unsustainable. Yeah, great point, Seth. I, I just add that, you know, we're now seeing numbers of over 30,000 uh, Russians killed. Of course, it's very difficult to ascertain uh, complete accuracy, uh, but the, we do see some evidence uh, with respect to, you know, folks that are coming in to, uh, to backfill them, uh, being uh, untrained, uh, uh, older, and so on and so forth. So you, you make an excellent point. And it didn't happen overnight, Dave, in Afghanistan. It took several years, frankly, for that to trickle down to the domestic population. So I'm not saying it's going to happen immediately. Yeah. So I, I would just simply add with that, if, if we do end up degrading down to that kind of attrition, guerrilla-type warfare, it's absolutely essential that we provide the air defense mechanisms for Ukraine so that they do not continue to experience the, the human rights abuses and the civil the, the deliberate targeting of civilians and the mass casualties that is a, a, a key element of the Russian strategy. Because that's how, that is how Russia is targeting Ukraine and they will continue to do that uh, if, this, if this, this conflict continues. Okay, here's a, an interesting one from, uh, uh, I tend to, not call on anonymous attendees, but this is a pretty good one that uh, people uh, I think have been uh, uh, thinking about anyway. And that's the issue of um, why are we providing or why are the Ukrainians providing the Russians sanctuary of operating in their own territory um, when the Russians have no compunction about uh, leveling Ukrainian uh, cities? Is this uh, truly a war um, or a limited military operation? Go Can ahead, I just Edward. jump in really fast because it's really a political question. I mean, I think for the Ukrainians, first of all, they understand the rules of war. And so they're only going to attack military targets, but there are legitimate military targets, as you mentioned, General, right from the outset, that they have been hitting and they need to hit more of. Um, but fundamentally, the Ukrainians also, for better or worse, they have to keep um, their risk down that they might incur collateral damage in Russia, um, thereby flipping the Russian um, public opinion to be more obviously or more stringently anti-Ukrainian right now. That's, a, that's a, a complex issue that I can't address in a few minutes, but um, they, they, they don't want to have a large popular uprising in Russia against Ukraine, and they certainly cannot afford to alienate the, the world democracies that are arrayed behind them right now. I think those are great points that you make, uh, Evelyn, that um, uh, uh, I think if, if those kinds of attacks are occurring, they're below the radar, if you will, um, but they're good reasons, uh, as you have outlined, uh, to and, and they can be defeated, uh, quite frankly, uh, inside the areas that, that they've already incurred. Okay, here's one from John Turpak to uh, uh, 
Yours truly and the panelist. For the whole panel, the Ukrainians say they could learn to fly F-16s in two weeks. What's a realistic timeline and what could be the source of the F-16s? The U.S. has a long waiting list for F-16s for several years. Uh, well, let me, let me answer you, John. Let me give you my answer. Uh, two weeks might be a bit much uh, uh, in terms of expectation. Um, I think more realistic for a full-up qualified fighter pilot uh, who's been flying a MiG-29s or Su-27s, you're looking at more uh, of a transition course from four to six weeks. Uh, but that certainly is reasonable uh, for training uh, and getting the Ukrainian uh, pilots up to speed. Um, with respect to the source of the F-16s, the United States Air Force, the Congress has authorized retirement of 48 F-16s this year. So clearly those are surplus to U.S. needs and those could effectively be targeted to uh, uh, the Ukrainian Air Force to help them reconstitute their Air Force uh, before the end of the year. Anyone else want to chime in there? I agree with your timeline. Four to six weeks or potentially at the, at the most uh, two months would be necessary to really uh, get the Ukrainian fighter pilots competent uh, within the F-16. And yeah, then just, so the, a major, a major if, if I may, Heather, just for the audience, so they understand, we're not talking about bringing somebody up from the first time they've flown an airplane. And what we're talking about is, is full up people, uh, fighter pilots who know how to fly aircraft and they can, they can learn the aircraft piece in about two weeks. It's the systems piece and the sensor employment um, that they need to get proficient on. And that would take the majority of the time. And just to add one element to put that timeline into context, this war began at the very least in 2014 with the seizure of Crimea and then shifted over to Eastern Ukraine. And then when the Russians couldn't expand the territorial control, then they obviously invaded conventionally in 2022. We've already been at this for you know, for about eight years, the idea that this is going to end uh, anywhere before that kind of timeline, I think, is probably ahistorical and certainly wrong. So there is a there is time. OK, real quick, we're running out of time. We've got about uh, three and a half minutes yet. But here's a question uh, that uh, we could spend hours on. Uh, and I throw it open to the panel. Uh, how do you think China is reading our efforts to support Ukraine? And what might this portend for actions that they take in the Pacific? I just throw it open to anybody. I'm happy to start briefly, uh, uh, Dave, just because we've uh, translated a whole bunch of uh, Chinese documents. So uh, some of the things that they highlight are uh, Russian mistakes uh, in surprise at the early part of the campaign, that if they're to move a uh, slow buildup that everybody in the world can see takes away an element of surprise. So I think one of the things the Chinese are talking about is if and when it's time to move, they're going to try to maximize the element of surprise along those lines. Second is uh, long range uh, fires. I mean, I think they now uh, believe that a, a war in uh, the Asia Pacific, the Chinese have got to continue to build uh, long range capability, standoff capabilities, and then uh, capabilities, including stealth, to operate within that bubble. So I think this is uh, this is reinforced the direction that they were already in. I think they the Chinese have been very critical in publications of Russian logistics and the ability of Russian ground forces to protect their logistics uh, bases, particularly the operations around Kiev as well as in Kharkiv. And so um, I think the that where the Chinese are now struggling is how to figure out how to protect. Uh, their logistics in a war with the uh, the U.S. Uh, in and around Taiwan or somewhere else in the South China Sea, and just uh, two other things to to, uh, to to finalize with just what we're seeing from the Chinese. One is how to how do you uh, blunt sanctions uh, as part of a war, and then finally, and this goes to the whole subject of what we're talking about here: Can you outlast the Americans? They may start strong. Will they continue to sustain uh, efforts? Will they continue to provide assistance to their allies as the war drags on? And what are the implications 
as we've noted, if we are not providing that sustained assistance to Ukraine, then we're sending a message to Beijing that, you know what, after a three to four to five to six month bubble, we'll, we'll talk a lot and provide some assistance. We're not going to be in it for the long run. We don't okay, but I, have to, I agree with everything Seth said in terms of the, the things that they're looking at operationally, tactically, and even strategically. But I would also say on the flip side, I think the Chinese are seeing how quickly, not all the world, but much of the world rallied to Ukraine and to this cause. And that they are seeing that this, this isn't going to be easy skating. And they also have to factor in the, that, that we have a longer standing defense relationship with Taiwan than we ever had with Ukraine. So there, there are all other things that should cause, should cause them to take pause um, at, that, at that global level. Well, thank you both. If I, it, Heather, if I may, we're, we're really up against the time and uh, just sitting here thinking about this particular topic, uh, perhaps we can all get together again in the not too distant future and have a whole session just talking about implications for China. Uh, so as we close out, let me emphasize one key point. As Steth mentioned, uh, the fight in Ukraine is not new. Um, it traces back to an aggressive set of actions Putin's past pursued since the 2008 invasion of uh, Georgia. Uh, the international community didn't react to those events, so pressing further was logical on his part. So what I'd offer is from a strategic perspective, what's at play here is the capacity of the United States to deter conflict has significantly eroded over the past 30 years. And that's part of why Putin took the actions that he did. He sensed weakness on the part of the United States and he's taken advantage of that weakness and we need to change that calculus. So the Russian action should be a wake up call to rebuild the US military as President Xi could easily do the same thing in the Pacific. So ladies and gentlemen, we've come to the end of this Aerospace Nation event. I really wanna give a big thanks to each one of our panelists for being here. And from all of us at the Mitchell Institute, have a great aerospace power kind of day. Thank you.